I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, we are back, Seth. Good to see you. Good to see you, Luke. And we have our guest again with us for the second week in a row, hey. Mr. Matthew Brazelton. How are you, Matthew? Doing great. Thanks for having me again. Welcome back. Why did Why did you want to come back? <laughs> I love this podcast. It's super fun. Great. Yeah. It's always one of my favorite questions to ask people that come to our church is, why did you come a second time? It's, it's interesting question. to figure out how people found it. But So you came Fool a second. Fool me once, shame on <laughs> yeah. you. Fool me twice. So you came back. I won't get fooled again. Just because... You had nothing else to do, and we invited you back, and you like the podcast, yeah. so that's great. Yeah. So um, what this is, if you're kind of new to this, is a convert. we'd like to have just some conversations where we try to go deeper into theological and biblical uh, issues, and especially how they connect with culture. Um, we um, are not trying to be grumpy or complainy, but we are trying to kind of be eyes wide open about how the biblical world um, interacts with and many times critiques the world that we're in uh, as well as just points us a better way. So today we're talking about a theme that shows up a lot in the Bible. And interestingly, as much as it shows up in the Bible, we are just not that familiar with it. And it's this theme of covenants, covenants. And uh, maybe the only time I think about hearing the word covenant in normal life would be if I'm part of an HOA or something, uh, you know, some sort of covenant you know, homeowner community or something like that. Uh, generally, people don't love their HOAs. I haven't met a lot of people that are super stoked about it. So this idea of covenant is sort of unfamiliar to us. Um, and, and it probably would be helpful if we contrasted it with something. And probably the easiest thing set to do with that is to contrast it with contracts. So how is a covenant and a contract different? One way to think about this, and I've noticed this recently as I've done or officiated weddings, is people... Uh, have there's this option in Arizona to have a covenant marriage license in contrast with the standard marriage license, which is seen as a contract. And so the state views marriage as a contract, but there's, you know, part of a, a movement in Arizona to try to help it be seen as more of a covenant. And so in order to get divorced in a covenant, it's harder. Basically, there's like some conditions that have to be met, whereas out of a contract, it's kind of as soon as someone wants out, there's like no fault. Divorce, And so a contract is usually a mutual exchange of goods and services by relatively equal power uh, parties. And so one, ordinarily nowadays, it's one party provides the goods or services, the other party provides money. And once one of those parties feels like the money or the goods don't equal in value, they get out of the, out of the contract or they renegotiate the contract or that's kind of how that ends up playing out. And but getting out of a covenant is way more costly than just terminating a contract. There's a deeper cost, more of a pain benefit. And so uh, ever since we've kind of been in this, what we could call like a consumeristic society where there are options that we, you know, think about Burger King represents the entire American way of life, which is <laughs> have it your way. Yeah. And so I think Burger King kind of peels right to the heart of why would I want to have it somebody else's way? You know, why would I go to McDonald's where I don't have it my way, even though you kind of do, <laughs> but Burger King grabs, I think the American ethos, which is have it your way. And that have it your way mentality, I think affects the way we view relationships in general. It affects the way we view our church. It affects the way we view um, our marriage. It affects the way we view our children, 
our HOAs, our mm-hmm. everything, that there is this, if I'm not having it my way, then I need to renegotiate this contract. And it basically reduces all human interaction and it transitions it from relational to transactional. Mm-hmm. Meaning when this transaction isn't giving me the benefits that I thought it was, then this transaction stinks and I want out of it. And in contrast, so it, it ends up dehumanizing people, it ends up reducing them, it ends up turning everyone into someone you can use as a networking object. And so this kind of contractual view of life, I think, is a, a, is a real phenomenon that is um, destroying the social fabric and is a big aspect into why uh, people jump around from church to church or when the going gets tough, the tough get out of there, or why when the heat turns up, these are not the goods and services I agreed on, and so I leave. And so the, the effects of a contractual society versus a covenantal society are pretty deep and wide. It makes me think of the housing crisis in 2008, 2009, 2010, how many people bailed on their contractual agreements to pay their mortgage because it mm. felt like, wow, like my house is no longer worth mm. what I'm paying for. And kind of my underlying principle is I only pay for what's valuable, so now I'm, I'm out. See, it's funny, though, because I kind of think of contracts being, like, pretty serious. Like, I, I actually think contract, well, I can't just get out of that. I signed a contract, right? Mm-hmm. I know, Matthew, for you, over the last few years, as we've moved into this space and you've dealt right. with architects and with contractors and with subcontractors and with all these different people, you've had to read and have lawyers review mm-hmm. lots of contracts. It's not like you take those contracts and go, like, ah, whatever. We don't even read it. Let's just sign it because we can just get out of it super easy. Right. So a contract itself is pretty serious. But what we're saying is a covenant is even more like you've signed a lot of contracts helping mm. out our church. Mm. Uh, Only signed one covenant, but, but no, not, two covenants. not many covenants, marriage and church, marriage and church. Yeah. Okay. So covenants are even more serious than contracts. Uh, where do we see the idea of covenants begin to kind of unfold in the Bible? Well, one of the things in the form tradition that we have that actually is something that we see behind the text of the Bible is we describe as God being in covenant with himself. That's called the covenant of redemption in the form, in the form tradition, which is God, the father, the son, and the spirit together um, deciding upon a plan of salvation that uh, they're going to decide to create the world, um, decide to allow the story to unfold a certain way. They're going to decide to send the son for the son to die for the spirit to be sent by the father and the son. And so there's like agreement or like the, like it's a pact almost the, even like the way that some of the Latin fathers, I guess they were Greek. They spoke Latin. (laughs) They they weren't Latin, but in Latin, they talked like the pactus salutis, like the salvation pact or the, the covenant of redemption. But we sort of imagine three pinky fingers coming to the middle you know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, hey, we're, and so there's like this for our glory and for the sake of the cosmos, we're going to do this. We're going to make our name great. And here's the roles we're going to play and we're going to be on the same team. And so that's kind of like an imaginary dialogue between the Yeah, father, there's no verse for that. Yeah. There's just the Father, Son, and the Spirit. But we do see like various texts in John and Philippians 2 where it's the Son agrees to do what the father says. The father says that, you know, here's the time and the spirit is sent by both of them. And so there's this uh, mutual submission that's happening within the, within the Godhead. And this is the way that the God who is one and is tri-personal, uh, they together decide, here's how we're going to do this. And so that's called the, the covenant of redemption. So it's God's covenant within himself to save a fallen humanity and redeem a fallen creation 
from its sin. And so it's God's commitment to graciousness. It's his commitment to play these distinct but similar roles. And that kind of plays out. So, so one of the things that we see from the very beginning is that a covenantal view of the world uh, is required of a Trinitarian worldview. And so we've heard it said before that love comes before power, but in every worldview besides Trinitarian worldviews, that's impossible. Mm. So, whether, so, so wait, so in every other tradition and worldview, power actually comes before love. In Christianity, love comes before power. Yeah, by necessity. And that's not just because it sounds good to the modern ear, but because whether it's Islam or the Big Bang or uh, Mormonism, you end up having w- one singular preexistent God. Or power. Or power or force or situation that exercises its power to create an other, and all of a sudden, after the power is exercised, now there's an other, and now love can exist. Mm. And so power must be exercised before love, whereas in a Trinitarian worldview, you have this eternally loving, you know, God is love reality, and so that this, this, this idea that my ability to exercise relational first perspective on life, so the way that I talk about it is I have a relational ontology. So the very, so ontology comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being. And so my view of what is, what exists, the, the being and fabric of the entire universe is that it's relational. And the reason it's relational or covenantal is because God is relational covenantal because he's triune and he's love. And so even though our modern secular society wants us to be able to view people and places and things as transactional um, other to me, separate from me, distant from me. I think a biblical worldview requires that I view every interaction relationally. That even if I don't know the guy in Craigslist that I'm scamming, I do know him. I'm relate like I'm bound up in Adam with him. Like we're part of the one human race, and so there's there's this relational connection. And so it, this it, it's interesting, even as you say that, because I I sort of think that most of us kind of feel like um, I want you to treat me with love but I want to be able to treat you with transaction. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, I, I, yeah. I really, if you just treat me transactionally, uh, I'm not cool with that. Like, Hey, I th- isn't love. Aren't we supposed to be nice? Aren't we supposed to? Yeah. It makes me think about how, uh, I mean, you said kind of the, this covenantal reality is part of the f- foundational nature of who God is. And it makes me wonder about the hyper litigious, like, quality of our current culture Hmm. are we trying to fill spoken like the son of a lawyer yeah are we trying to fill (laughs) the the covenant gap Hmm. with contractual action right i mean we we long for this this covenant reality where we love one another first and serve one another first we don't we've seen that that's broken down and so we're trying to cram almost like a square peg in a round hole to fix it and it yeah. doesn't work. So so we're not in this saying, Seth, that, that God's not powerful, but that because he's triune, because he's in relationship, in loving covenantal relationship with himself, that love is in a sense that, that it's the primacy. Yeah, only in a Trinitarian worldview can love truly supersede power. Hmm. And especially in a current moment where everyone's talking about who has power, who should have power, who gets the power, it, it is really interesting to notice that nobody here is presuming that the one with power is going to be loving. Mm. Everyone's afraid. And this is what happens in world history mm. is there is a powerful person or people 
oppressing the less powerful people. And then somehow over time, the less powerful people become powerful and then they oppress. And it just keeps going. Yeah. And so it's, it's taste of your own medicine ism back and forth. And so we tend to be treated transactionally and therefore we reciprocate with transaction. You know, well, if you're going to nickel and dime me, then I'm a nickel and dime. And so it's a taste your own medicine back and forth in this kind of power battle. And it's, it's petty, but it's, it reduces humanity to this power struggle. Mm. And so when you have a covenantal view that a relational God makes a relational universe, it gives you this freedom to not get bound up in this petty back and forth transactionalness things. And so some of the places that I feel tempted to see things transactionally, like I remember I sold a motorcycle on Craigslist when I was 19 and I super overcharged the guy for it. But there's this like sucker, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I knew what it was worth. Everything I mean, you did was legal. It was all legal. It was the, it was a contract, right? There was a mutually agreed upon exchange of goods and services. He gave me cash. I gave him a motorcycle. Uh, you met all your legally laid out obligations. You had no further obligation. Yeah. I didn't, uh, you know, cheat him. But if I had sold that motorcycle to my brother, mm. I would have given him a different price, mm. probably. Yeah. And the fact that the other guy was stupider than me seemed like not my problem. Mm. Yeah. Right? Because I was decided to treat him transactionally. And I decided to reduce him to the object on the other end of my contract. I, but if I had seen this person as image of God... I would have gone about that differently. I might have made about four hundred less dollars, which would have been significant to nineteen-year-old Seth. Sure, right. Not that it's insignificant now, but it was extra significant <laughs> at nineteen. Right. But that's an example of that. Yeah, one of the most encouraging stories I've heard recently. Uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who recently bought a uh, a fixer-upper house to flip, yeah. and um, he's trying to make decisions of what quality of work should we do mm. behind the scenes. So that when we sell this house, we, you know, we're going to, we're going to make a profit obviously. And he, um, actually runs his business as a Christian business. So he, he's a real estate agent and does some of this work on the side. And, and he kind of has told his people, like, we're not going to cut corners Mm. to try to maximize our profit when it means that other people will suffer. We're actually going to try to live in covenant with, with Mm. our obligations to, to other people. So he's going to make a little bit less money. So he's going to make less money. Maybe even a significantly amount less. He'll still make money. But he's going to actually, I think, experience more blessing as a result of living Mm -hmm. more fully into the image of his covenantal creator. Yeah. And so God is in covenant with himself. He's existing forever. And he creates us, right? He uses his power and his love to create us. But he then treats us covenantally. He doesn't treat us transactionally. Um, or am I understanding that right, Seth? Yeah, and this is, I think, the great miracle that God would have been just in saying, you failed to uphold your side, which is obey me. Mm-hmm. You're done. Yeah. And so this is part of the beauty of the covenant of redemption is that he, so this is the whole idea of like Ephesians 1, 4 says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And covenant redemption's going. So God, before he creates anything, is having some type of conversation with himself going, I'm not going to bail on them. Yeah. I'm going to go get him. You know, there's one of my favorite hymns is he came from heaven and he sought her to be his holy bride. Mm. With his own blood, he bought her. Mm. 
and something something he died it rhymes i forget the rest of the name <laughs> stuff, but it goes, it goes that one of your favorites one of my favorite names <laughs> mostly the, that one line he came that's from heaven good. and sought her to be his holy bride mm. and that's and that's powerful but even when you think about so contracts are almost always so even if there's a more powerful party and less powerful party both parties have the ability uh or the same power in exiting the contract that's supposed to be the idea and so we would talk about an unjust society is one in which people are stuck in contracts can't get out of and you know hashtag free britney i don't know if you guys have seen that going on but britney's stuck in a music production contract so oh yeah wow so big deal britney spears fans i missed that one matthew missed it too yep does britney spears still have fans uh she has at least one so (laughs) you i don't really know any of her stuff but i just know she's imbibed in controversy does she still do new music no because she's her they own her that's the whole idea Ah. So she's kind of protesting. Anyway, so this free Britney, everybody, or okay. no, or not. I don't know. The, I don't know. The, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Who knows? Free Britney hey, or don't. Baby, one more time. <laughs> wow, that was great, Simmons. Let yeah, everyone know that was Luke. Simmons. That was Matthew Brazelton <laughs> singing beautifully. Way to go, Matthew! Wow. So Jesus, what are we talking about? Yeah. Free Britney contracts. Contracts. So are there any examples of covenant in the Old Testament? Like you mentioned Ephesians from the New Testament, but. Yeah, so I think the most important and central idea is the way that God initiates covenant with Abraham. Mm. And so there's a couple of things here. When we talk about covenants in the way that God initiates them, so in the ancient Near East, the more powerful party, there's kind of like a suzerian vassal deal. So there's a suzerian who's like the the covenant initiator, the more powerful. Um, so basically like you have a stronger nation, comes to a smaller nation and there's a bit of a one-sidedness deal. That's like, I'm cutting a covenant with you and the smaller nation has a choice, but it's also, there's a real power discrepancy here that, and then there's the vassal and the suzerain. And so is suzerain, like a guy named Susan or what, what is that word? It's, it's a sort of, it it's a way of delivering a baby. <laughs> suzerain. Oh wait, that's not yeah. it. <laughs> so the vassal is the less powerful party. Suzerian is the more powerful party. Okay. Yeah. Got which it. is probably an easier way to say it, but that's ancient Eastern yeah. covenantal language. I've read that before somewhere. Yeah. So I, I don't even know if I'm saying it right because I've only ever read it. in school. Yeah. So what ends up happening is the nations have fallen. Sin is everywhere. Um, God goes to Abraham, says, my blessing be a blessing. But then in Genesis 15, we see the process. And so... Uh, the idea of initiating a covenant would be described as cutting a covenant uh, and upholding a previous covenant would be described as establishing a covenant. So you think about like a building, like something that's fallen down to establish it, you pick it back up. But the covenant with Abraham is cut or established in Genesis 15. And so I want to kind of read some of that text and talk about some of the places where the ESV blows it and we'll kind of get to some of this imagery here. So Genesis 15, 12, God's about to cut his covenant with Abraham. So uh, he says, the sun was going down, deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and they'll be servants, they'll be there afflicted for 400 years. So he's saying, this is a, in sickness and health, till death to his yeah. Like, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Know this. For certain. You'll be afflicted 400 years. So there's, there's kind of, right at the bat, God's saying, we're making a covenant, and it's not all going to be fairy tales and rainbows. Um, I'll bring judgment on the nation that was there, but afterwards it'll come out great. As for you, shall know your fathers in peace, buried a good old age. 
And when the sun, verse 6, 17, had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So these pieces are referring to a part earlier on in verse uh, 9, 8 and 9, where it says, like, how do I know I possess this covenant? And he says, bring a cow, um, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. He brings all them and he cuts them in half and lays them half over each against each other. So essentially what you have is this aisle. This is kind of where like in weddings we get the walking down the aisle Hmm. imagery from. And so you put half of, so you have a dead half cow on this side, dead half cow on that side, dead half pigeon, all the way down. So all these dead animals. That's a unique way of doing a wedding. We could really reform that. We could pull that out and... Queen Creek, I bet that would happen. So then, um, so then there's this weird detail in verse 11. And when the birds of prey came to the carcasses, Abram shoot them off. So it's like, good call. They were freshly dead and trying to be eaten. But then, when it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces, this is while Abram's incapacitated. He's laying down. He's not involved. So what should have happened in cutting a covenant or establishing a covenant is you cut these animals in half. And basically, what you're saying is, let me be like these animals. If I break this covenant. So this was a common thing. They were doing this in other yeah. places at yeah. the time. Abraham and God don't initiate, like this isn't the first covenant ceremony, yeah. but God's taking the imagery and process used by other ancient Near Eastern contexts and is using it as an illustration of how serious his relationship is with Abram. Hmm. So, so if I, if I don't hold up my end, cut me in half. Yeah. Kill me. May, may I, I be like these yeah. animals. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is God causes Abram to fall asleep and then God, by himself, symbolized by the fire pot and the flaming torch, walks between the pieces, basically saying, this is a one-sided covenant, which is the first time we see that in the entire ancient Near East, saying, this covenant is on me. I maintain it. My, my integrity is on the line. So he's the Susan guy and the vassal. No, Abraham's still the Caesarian. I mean, no, God's the Caesarian. Abraham's the vassal. Okay. But the whose integrity is at stake in this covenant is God and God alone. Mm. And so basically this is what's called an unconditional covenant. Mm. Yeah. What Abraham brings to it is a nap. Yeah. Abraham brings nothing to (laughs) it besides being the needy party who's benefiting from the blessing of the greater party. So there's this one directional, this is not a mutual exchange of goods and services. Mm. This is a one directional outpouring of blessing where God says through thick and thin, I will bless you. It won't always be easy, but my, my will won't be thwarted. And so God cuts. So in verse 18, it says, On that day, this is what the ESV says, it, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, which I think is, the word made there is the word kareth, which means cut. It's, so God cut a covenant with Abraham is, would be the best translation. So to cut a covenant is to establish it, to get it going, and to fire it up. It's not conditional on anything. It's just kind of like I'm going to, this stuff's going to happen, and I'm going to give you this land. Yeah. Later on, we see other covenants that God establishes or he, he cuts um, that have elements of conditionality. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why we need Jesus, because they are eventually conditioned on, in order to enter into the promised land, here's, the, here's what needs to happen. We need to see a faithful law keeper. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being that God's covenant is in a one sense unconditional. Here we see him going, I'm the one bringing this to pass. Mm. And later on, he says, one of you Jews, one of you Israelites needs to faithfully keep your end of the covenant Mm. if it's going to happen. And that never happens until Jesus comes and he's the faithful covenant keeper. Mm. And so he establishes the conditions or Jesus meets the conditions for eternal blessing, which is one of the reasons why God had to take on flesh 
as Jesus to live as a sinless Jew is there are other aspects of the covenant that need to be met for eternal life and paradise to be established. And so, but here we see this establishing covenant in a really powerful and clear way. So this was a long time ago. What about today? Like, are we still in a covenant with God or did Jesus just take care of all that? And so this is where the idea of being in Christ is really important and means a ton is that to be in Christ means that we are covered in his blood and we are members of his body. And so in that sense, membership in Christ, when which happens when you turn from Christ in faith, you turn to Christ in faith and repentance, turning from sin, you become a part of the body of Christ. You become in Christ. And what this means is that we are part of the people um, for whom Christ has gone to save. So that covenant of redemption is exercised on us. And even this part where we see Jesus upholding Abraham's vision to what this would look like is we are incorporated into that covenant. And so because of Christ being the faithful covenant keeper, we are now the children of Abraham that God talked about and blessed them. He said, um, for you and your fathers, so verse 15, Genesis 15, 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at good old age. And you shall come back here in the fourth generation. The iniquity of Amorites is not yet compete. And the sun goes down. Basically, the, he's saying the promise that I made, which that your offspring will be like the stars in the universe, your fathers will eventually find peace or your, your offspring will eventually find peace. And we are his offspring and we are the ones that he promised. And so covenant is the means of God achieving his kingdom. And so we go like, how does God bring about his kingdom? Well, it's through establishing covenants with people who unfaithfully uphold their end until Christ, who then faithfully keeps their end. And we now are the means or the covenant people by whom and through whom God is establishing his kingdom. And so he is still the suzerian. We are the vassals. Mm -hmm. And so he is still the ruler of the powerful kingdom. And we are brought into that kingdom by means of covenant. And we're connected to the Lord forever being agents of his kingdom. Well, I just did a quick search of the word covenant in the new Testament. And it's interesting because most of the times it shows up, it's talking about Jesus instituting the Lord's supper and saying this uh, cup is the blood of the new covenant. Um, and that's interesting because I think even when we, when we, many of us, when we celebrate communion, we think about it mostly representing our personal forgiveness but also one of the things it marks out is that we are part of this covenant. We're part of this community. We're part of this family. We've been caught up together with everyone else who's also drinking from the cup. That it isn't just an individual thing, although it gloriously is, but that it also marks us as a, as a family, as the people of God. Yeah, and this is, it's certainly not less than our personal forgiveness. We talked about that in a previous episode of the need to have our sin propitiated by the blood of Jesus, but separating that from belonging to the covenant community, the people for whom Christ died, that we are part of Abraham's family is really impossible. And so this is one of the reasons why people in our churches, and I'm tempted to this as well, tend to view the local covenant community as optional and contractual. Hmm. Like I view my local church, and this is something I want everyone who's listening to this podcast, including the three of us here talking, is we are in a default contractual mode as relates to other believers in Christ. And that is just a product of American secularism and not a product of scripture that we totally are by default inclined to view our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ as contractual rather than covenantal. That until you are, if you don't give me what I want 
or say things how I want you to say them, then you're out. And there's this real kind of transactional view. If the church doesn't give me the goods and services I want, how I want them, and as soon as they give me something that certainly is the opposite that I didn't ask for, I didn't ask for that, uh, we tend to lean out either emotionally or literally. We begin to kind of withdraw, and that's a product of contractualism rather than covenantalism. So, Seth, how do you how do you draw a line, though, between, okay, I'm part of this larger covenant community of all Christians everywhere who are covered in the blood of Christ and who are marked out by him and his sacrificial atoning death for their sins. Okay, I get I'm part of that covenant community, but why does that then like necessarily obligate me in some special way to that group of people? versus this other group of people. I mean, if we're all part of the covenant community, couldn't I go to church here for this and go to church there for that and send my kids to that for this? And like, who cares, man? I mean, we're all we're all part of the covenant community. Who said anything about why I have to do it with these 50 people or these 500 people? Like, what, what difference does it make? That's, well, so there's an aspect of that that I want to affirm, and that's the Bible talks about the church with using really two horizons, we call it, the universal church and the local church. Um, the universal church is all who are in Christ, and there's a real sense in which we are all in covenant with one another, and if some person in who's in Christ in, I don't know, Texas, who I'll never meet in my life, says dumb stuff and annoys me, there's a sense in which I'm in covenant with that guy. And yeah. so there's a there's a yeah, we're we're both called by the same name of yeah, Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're both we're, we're children both, of Abraham. Yeah. We're both in Christ and there is a real sense of, and so harboring resentment or whatever that is is unhealthy and I there is a health to we are all part of this universal church. There's another horizon and we see that these letters especially are written to local bodies of believers. So to Talking the, about the New Testament epistles. Yeah, the New Testament epistles are written to the church in Galatia, the church in Rome. And even when Paul talks about establishing churches, he talks about a, a local body of believers under the authority of appointed elders. And so a church is not just any time there's Christians gathered. You know, it's not like if a group of Christians go to lunch on a Thursday, you can just call it a church. Um, but a church is really an organized group uh, uh, that's decided to be a family to one another that has appointed elders over it, appointed fathers over it. They're kind of going, hey, we're, we're going to be a family together. We're going to be this this pocket of the kingdom of God. And the office of elder is, they're supposed to uh, rightly divide the word, administer the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, and exercise church discipline. Those That's like the way the Reformed Church historically understood. There is a local church when there are those marks, th- these three marks. And uh, elders who are, elders could be considered the pater familias, Latin for the fathers of the family kind of going, hey, we're building a family here. And so what ends up happening when you overemphasize the universal church and underemphasize the local church is functionally you end up always treating everyone through a contractual lens. I use, so like I think this happens here, we have a great student ministry Mm -hmm. and people who will use our student ministry and then will use the kids program somewhere else on a, Wednesday night, and then we'll use the sermons online from some random person, and we'll use, and so you end up saying, hey, I care about everything, but what you end up doing is just like reducing everyone to the goods that they provide you, Hmm. rather than saying, I'm a part of this family, and so just like I think about my family, there's strengths and weaknesses, Yeah, 
there's opportunities. There are things we're not good at and things we're great at. Mm-hmm. There's things that I don't totally love about it. Yeah. And there's things I totally love about it. And so until you embrace a people or a place fully, both its strengths and its weaknesses, right? Uh, you haven't really become a part of that local covenant community and embraced like a, a, a membership in the family. Yeah. So like at Redemption Gateway, we have a class called Rooted that kind of helps you understand how to be rooted in the life of our church. And one of the options at the end of that is you can become a covenant member. And uh, there's a, actually is a, a thing on paper that you, you read and there's a leadership's agreement to you and your agreement to the rest of the church. Um, but Matthew, I mean, you're an elder. Why mm-hmm. is that a membership covenant and not a membership agreement or a membership deal or a membership contract or like, like why use covenant? Because I mean, I've gotten some emails in the last few months from folks who've said, Hey, I don't really want to be a member here anymore. And I didn't say, all right, well, meet me out back. Cause we're cutting you in half. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, we haven't so, done that yet. <laughs> right. We have, we have the room here. Uh, we can do that. So, I mean, on one hand we go, yeah, covenant, but like, not like that. Right. So like, should we just go, you know what? Let's just call it an agreement because it really isn't well, like going to cost you your life if you yeah. decide to leave. I mean, or, yeah. or say it's not because you're upset. Maybe you just go, you know what? I got a new job in Tulsa and I'm going to now go to church in Tulsa because that's where I live. Yeah. You know, we're not getting a saw, a buzz saw out. Right. Yeah. I think, I think the choice of the word was really to try to communicate what we feel like the bond should be between brothers and sisters in Christ in local community, which is a, it's a thick bond. It's a bond that says, I'm going to stick this out even when it's hard, even when at times I disagree, because I believe that the refining happens even in, in those moments. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I know people who, who have really endured difficulty in other places because they believe that, that the commitment matters Mm. and is part of God's design and God's actually using the difficulty in their life to make them more like Christ. Um, So so it's not meant to be kind of like, Hey, this is a sign in blood type covenant, but, but the use of that word is meant to signal something like, Hey, this is more than just this transactional, you know, goods and services set that you've been talking about. This is, this is, we're supposed to see this with a little bit more, Depth, yeah. a little more commitment, like a in, little more bite, a little yeah. more. feels like in a, a contract is drafted so that both parties can preserve their autonomy and their freedom and their mm. rights. Mm. But a, in a covenant, you kind of willingly give up oh, wow. some of your freedom and autonomy to experience other things that you couldn't experience in a contract. Like if my, my relationship with my wife was purely contractual, then we couldn't love each other. Mm. Because all we would be doing... At least doing, not at the level that you're able to love each other. Yeah, yeah. All we would be doing is simply exchanging what we agreed on for a cost. Yeah. But real love like, is self-sacrificial. Mm. It's what we see God do in Christ for us. And there are real seasons where it's imbalanced. Like yeah. our, in our covenant sure. with God, it is always imbalanced. Right. And, yet, and yet the relationship matters, and so he does it. I, I do think it's important to say that... So when we talk about local church covenant membership... We're taking a biblical idea and emphasizing it. So there's no, the New Testament doesn't talk about covenant local church membership. But I think a lot of the reason why churches now will talk about covenant church membership 
is because of how contractual and transactional our society has become. Yeah, the local church in the first century kind of just was covenantal because it was so little. You couldn't go to another church down the street. You didn't have any other options. And you were also, you know, increasingly a persecuted minority. It's like, hey, we're stuck together. Yeah, Carl, whether we like it or not. Carl Truman, who's one of my favorite church historians, talked about how the idea that how the the car, the automobile, yeah, I've heard him say that destroyed local church, local churches. Yeah, because all of us back in the day, there's like, hey, we're the first Baptist church. Okay, well now there's people nine miles that way, so we should have a second Baptist church. You know, and you kind of add churches based on proximity and distance. But now because of urbanization and how dense people are and that there's now a variety of options that churches tend to like, and this is kind of icky, but it's we carve out market niche and we offer certain types of goods and services that cater to certain types of people. And it's just kind of, and as soon as the church down the street offers a better product, I mean, this is how we pick our cheeseburgers. And I think that's kind of fine. You know, well, I like. I was driving somewhere today, and it's like, I feel like a burger. Well, which burger? And you start doing pros and cons on... <laughs> it's a good thing you don't have a covenantal relationship with a fast food restaurant. Yeah, I'm I'm almost in covenant <laughs> with In-N-Out. Not quite. <laughs> it's still a contract. Cause, but yeah. this this idea of we do start doing pros and cons on the patties, on the cheese, on the bun, on the... and mm. But we tend to do that with churches. And, mm. and the, if you start doing that with your wife, Ooh. your heart's in a bad place. Yeah. Right? And as soon as you start having the conversation, you're already sinning. Yeah. Right. And so, so and, and yet we wouldn't say you should never leave a local church. Like once you've signed this thing, you right. can't go. Yeah. So, so the use um, of the language of covenant is on purpose being countercultural, saying we all are saying we have this tendency to treat churches like, like you treat the gym, like you treat in and out or like you treat the gym. Yeah. And we're saying we're not going, we need to cut people in half when they leave the church because that would make us the nastiest of all cults, <laughs> but going, Hey, we're trying to actually be a family and that means something. And so this, this idea of relational commitment, even at severe personal cost, uh, has to do with why we do it. So we have a, in our redemption church membership packet, we have an article at the end, how to leave a church. Well, because we do think there are good reasons to leave a church. Mm-hmm. We don't think that if you know, your work low, makes you move to Alaska and you leave the church that we should cut you in half. That's not, that's sure. not, not, how and not just that. I mean, there might be reasons why you say, you know what? I really do feel like God's leading me elsewhere. I know, I know as pastors, I mean, it's not like pastors stay in one place forever. And yeah. uh, so there are reasons and God moves people around, but there's a way to handle it in a way that says, Hey, I'm going to honor the reality of our covenant relationship versus a way of handling that says like, you know what? I found a better burger. Yeah. And and part of the idea is we hope that people at our church are so relationally connected and they've so invested and they've so been curious and they've been vulnerable and they've allowed people to know them and they've gotten to know people that if it would be hard to just go like that sermon stunk, I'm out. Yeah. That mm. it would like, there's something to like the, the relational enmeshment, even our rooted class. We talk about how trees gain stability when their roots get tangled together mm. and that trees that are actually planted close to each other tend to not tip over in haboobs, whereas trees that are planted far apart do tend to tip over in haboobs. And so there's a sense in which not every Sunday at Gateway, not every small group you go to is like a five-star experience. Right. And one of the reasons why that's okay and that's fine is because we're relationally committed to one another. Mm-hmm. And it's not like 
having this assumption that everything's to happen. And so, well, this is what makes me nervous. So we've talked about people leaving our church. It also is what makes me nervous about when people show up. Yeah. Cause sometimes people show up and I say, Oh, how did you end up here? Why did you come here? And it's kind of like, well, because you're a better burger than mm. the last place, you know, like our last church didn't, you know, and I kind of always go, Oh, I don't, you know, and I, sometimes I've gone like, Hey, I'm really glad you're here. And I hope the Lord uses it. But I think, maybe you need to go back and have another conversation with somebody. Cause I, I'm not sure that was a great reason. So sometimes that happens. I also think in the covenant thing um, for us in particular at redemption gateway, being part of redemption church is saying, okay, we're also part of this mm. larger covenant. I was recently um, down visiting some of our leaders at redemption Tucson as they're processing different decisions about their future and buildings and different stuff. It was interesting. The level of ownership I felt in kind of speaking into that versus Another time when just another ministry friend of mine who lives in, uh, you know, up near Anthem said, hey, would you come and, and talk to me about whatever? I was still happy to provide my advice in both cases, and I care about both situations. But it was different when it was like, hey, this Redemption Tucson, this is family, um, and we're involved in this, and we're on the hook for this, and we're going to benefit from this. It's just a whole different dynamic. Yeah, we're, we are in covenant with the other Redemption congregations. And so there's a piece of that that I think will, whether we stay 10 congregations for 10 years or if in 10 years we have 20 congregations, that there will always be this temptation that when the cost for some local congregations begins to feel like it outweighs the benefit, our contractual mindset will say maybe mm-hmm. we should step back. Mm-hmm. But if we have a covenant mindset, we go, this, we signed up for the, that, the reality that there will be serious times when the cost outweighs the quote unquote benefit, depending on how you measure that benefit. Uh, it's easiest to measure um, numbers of people and money. And so we, those tend to be the benefits that we measure. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of other benefits that redemption gives us sure. besides financial position and, and people specifically moral character, theological. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that there's just always a, a fight in our heart, minds and souls to treat all people through the lens of, like a relational ontology rather than transactions. And so there are different degrees of covenants, right? I do think it should be, uh, but, but the lens of covenant, which is, this is how God treats people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I feel like that's the big takeaway from this is to go like, Hey, God is himself in covenant with himself. He's in loving relationship that precedes his power. And therefore as Christians, especially with each other, Mm. And as we follow him, like we're entering into a covenant dynamic, not a consumer dynamic, not a contractual dynamic, but yeah. um, it's, it's this, it's a different thing. It's a family, it's a marriage, it's a relationship and it, and that's why not only is it more costly, but it's also better. Yeah. It's interesting when you enter a contract, you do it because you're a little suspicious because maybe you don't trust the other party. Yeah, you're trying to protect yourself. Yeah. That's but when you enter into a covenant, it's because you've you've chosen to trust that person. So yeah. very different. Yeah, and in that sense, there's a tremendous risk whenever right. someone enters into covenant relationship with Redemption Church Gateway. Right. And I appreciate that. And that's the people in our, and, and there's also kind of like the newlywed effect, you know, when people who are brand new Redemption Gateway, there's kind of this rose colored glasses thing. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, this burger tastes so much better than mm-hmm. the Del Taco I was eating previously or, or yeah. whatever. But those rose colored glasses wear off and at some point kind of the rubber meets the road and you kind of heard Seth Steele or Luke Steele and it's my small group has disappointing weeks and and it's in those moments that I think we go 
it, we want to be decidedly countercultural and saying, I am refusing to embrace a transactional worldview and I want to hold on to this relational worldview. And one of the things I see, even when it comes to evangelism and helping people try to meet Jesus, is that when I treat people through this like relational, ontological, covenantal way, when I'm invested and curious in them and not treating them just, it tends to kind of blow people away a little bit. Hmm. And yeah. It, like, yeah, had, people can tell if they're your project, if they're your, you know, it's, <laughs> I was talking this, or I, I think I read a tweet the other day. Someone said, you know, man, I ran into this old friend and they took all this interest in me and they had all these questions. And then they told me about their multi-level marketing <laughs> thing. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I, I can't trust anything. I had a buddy from high school who you know? I kind of knew. He's like, hey, Seth, how's it going? I was like, oh, I haven't heard from this guy in a while. And I was like, pretty good, man. What's going? He's like, pretty sweet, you know, just, you know, trying to real estate, yada, 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 contact me for my real estate needs. And I was like, well, that was lame. Yeah. Uh, whereas this has happened multiple times in, in the last couple of years, like when I get, get to know people at the gym who I really like. Mm-hmm. And I'm just curious about them. Like I'm. Yeah. I want to know more about them. I want to hear about their lives. And uh, and you and you'd love for them to meet Jesus. You know he's the best yeah. thing that anyone could ever experience, but you're just loving them because you love them. Yeah, I'm not like trying to crowbar them in anything. They're just kind of a, I, I meet them and I kind of, yeah. in my heart, go, look, image of God. I love, I care about them. And this happened in, in particular, I appreciate my one of my old gyms. Like there was this, this guy who was, in his fifties, he's lived a long life. Had great, and just after like ninety minutes of conversation, he was like, "Man, I've never had a conversation like that before." Mm. And it mostly just made me really like I didn't like pat myself on the back. That's and like, like heartbreaking. Yeah, and I'm just going. This is what happens when a whole group of people called everyone in the world <laughs> treats people transactionally. Yeah, is these ninety minute conversations where people treat people like humans and see them as complicated, fully orbed people with stories and desires and hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties. It's just so foreign to Mm. do that. And I think that's part of our post-industrial, economically driven world where it's everything was reduced to the exchange of goods and services. And I just hope that even like we as Redemption Gateway, we can be people who refuse to buy into that view of people. And and that ends up being like one of the first steps towards love Mm. is I'm refusing to see you as a person with whom I have a transaction instead I'm deciding to see you as a person with whom I have a relationship, whether it's your Starbucks barista or your bartender or your waitress or a person you work out with or your neighbor uh, or your HOA community. Hmm. And (laughs) what that ends up mean is you enter in saying this will be more costly than it will be for others, but that's what love does. Yeah. So Matthew, what about for you? Any kind of, uh, as we reflect on this and, and kind of wrap up, what are your, a big takeaway or a kind of main thing you're chewing on as we. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the thing I'm chewing on is just that love is costly Mm. and um, I'm so wired to, to view every situation through the lens of how can I get the best angle? How can I, you know, how can I make this benefit the people that I'm trying to benefit? And so to, to ask the Lord to reframe my mind and go, how can I, how can I be more like God who isn't stingy and trying to work the angles, but it's actually, he's actually eager Mm. to give himself away for the blessing and benefit of Mm. those he loves. Yeah. Which feels like that's going to be a a life of loss. 
and yet Jesus reorients it and says, that's, that's what gain looks like. Mm. So, yeah. And bringing this full picture, we'd, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about hell somewhere. It's we're critiquing the hell out of culture. Mm. And this, this is like just a place where my heart's been breaking is it is hellish mm. the way that we reduce people to goods and services. This is at the heart of pornography. This is at the heart of using our neighbors. This is at the heart of, mm. uh, you know, church swapping as soon as the going gets tough. This is at the heart of leaning out when people. Yeah. It's don't at the heart of a lot of social media sass and snark. Yeah. It's, it's hellish and there's Cancel hell culture. Yeah. And there's, there's hell in between us and the hell in between us is you are providing me goods and services or I'm out. And as long as that hell remains as a filter, like a lens, if that is the lens with which we view people, we will never have meaningful relationships. Yeah. And the worst part about that is that we'll never faithfully represent the triune God right. who's coming with himself mm. faithfully. We'll never do it. Yeah, the hell is you are devalued to only what you offer me in the moment. Like that's the only place your value comes from. And if you don't offer me what I want, you're nothing. Mm. Add value to me, produce value in my life, or be gone. Right. Yeah, and just how different that is from the Lord who says, "Hey, uh, hey, nappy over there, <laughs> while you're while you're sleeping, I got this." Yeah, that's good. Well, Seth, this has been good. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Yeah. It's great to have you back. Thanks to have. Thanks Maybe for we'll me. have you again. Uh, we'll <laughs> see. But uh, thanks, y'all, for listening. And uh, that's it for today. Have a good one. <laughs>